0: This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery, and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus.
1: There's no denying climate change is already impacting the way we plan for and respond to disasters. With disasters likely to become more frequent and intense, we're asking the question, what can we as disaster professionals do to make the world a safer place? Today, On the show we're speaking to a leader who gathered former fire and emergency services chiefs to lobby for action on emissions reduction and the growing bushfire threat facing australian communities in the lead up to the 2019 summer andrew who is joining us on the show today
0: Josh, on the show today, we're joined by former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales, Greg Mullins. Greg has been fighting fires for 50 years, 39 of those with Fire and Rescue, where he holds the record as the second longest serving Commissioner. Greg's experience spans many disaster events, including significant fires and earthquakes, and most recently, the Black Summer Bushfires. After witnessing firsthand the impact of climate change, Greg became a founding member of Emergency Leaders for Climate Action and in 2020 chaired the National Bushfire and Climate Summit following the bushfires. With his many years of experience, we'll be asking Greg what more can be done to limit the impact of climate change, what we can expect to see in the future, and what Emergency Leaders for Climate Action are doing to bring attention to this issue. This episode was recorded prior to the recent federal election and subsequent change of government, in Australia. Let's chat with Greg Mullins here on Me, Myself, and
2: Disaster. Greg Mullins joins us now live from Sydney. Greg, welcome to the show.
3: Yeah, thanks very much for having me.
2: Greg, you've been a, a volunteer now for uh, many years and um, a paid fiery in 37 years in Fire and Rescue New South Wales. What what really motivated and inspired you to become a firefighter in the first place?
3: Well, clearly it was my dad. <laughs> We lived over the road from the bushfire brigade shed, and it was a shed in those days. It actually fell down after it was eaten out by white ants. But um, I used to see Dad rushing off, jumping on the old ex-army truck that they used as a tanker, and heading off to fires. And uh, from as far back as I can remember, we lived surrounded in an area surrounded by national park. And whenever there was smoke on the air, in the air, um, Dad was off fighting the fires. So I joined him. Fighting fires when I was about 13,
2: 12, I think. Yeah. And you've been you've done that for for many years. And now. now you're now you're fighting fires again with the Royal Fire Service as a volunteer since you've retired from from fire and rescue.
3: Yeah. Well, look, I you know I started fighting fires with Dad as a child, basically, and then when I was thirteen, I became a volunteer with the Bush Fire Brigade, as it was called then. When I was eighteen, left school, went into the full time fire brigade. Uh, Thirty nine years there, and I straight away. Came back and joined my old brigade at Terry Hills um, where it all started. So, um, yeah, I've sort of gone full circle and it's been really interesting looking at what's changed over the time. And I know you want to get into that so I won't let the cat out of the bag, but it's just when you start considering what's happened to weather and fire intensity and everything and then read the science, it's a wow oh, this is
2: bad. <laughs> yeah, and no, certainly um, when you were away camping uh, in 1994 and that camping to the north coast of New South Wales, sounds like after reading your book, uh, Firestorm, that's where it all kicked off for you and the realisation about climate change. Can you take us through that? Like, how What was a moment of change for you when you really sort of thought the world is changing and we need to do something about climate change? Yeah,
3: look, I, I'd always – well, bushfire seasons were predictable and – and everywhere, you know, with it, I've travelled to California, Europe, and the fire authorities here worked with them. And, and all around the world, people knew their particular fire weather, the particular times of year, um, what the indicators were that there was going to be a bad season, like drought, um, high temperatures, etc. And they're often cycles. And in Sydney, um, you know, 10 to 11 years, you'd have the Blue Mountains go up in the suburbs of Sydney. And then 1994 came along. And, you know, there was a bad build-up early in the season, but then it it rained in November, and that was a big indicator. You'd have the storms and the humidity come in October, November, and you knew, great, we got over the hump. Uh, There might be fires on the south coast and definitely in Victoria and Tasmania and South Australia in February, but we're okay. We're off the hook now. We can go and help other people. 1994, it didn't happen like that. It just rained, and then it just stopped raining. And it crept up on us. And um, I I went away on holidays and it always gave me the creeps, actually, to go away on holidays in summer because I'm a firefighter. That's my calling. And, you know, I felt I needed to be there when people needed me most. And I'm one of hundreds of thousands, so go figure. That was, I think all firefighters feel like that. And it just, um, we were camping in a remote area and the weather just changed, and we are up on the top of the mountain range one day, and I saw in the distance a huge smoke column, and I just looked at the colour of it and how quickly it was moving. And I just thought, what's happened while we've been away for the last week or so? Because uh, the weather's just changed, and we were sheltered from these strong westerly winds, and I actually smelt smoke. Um, and we're in the middle of nowhere, and it was just us, my two children, who were... quite young at that time, eight and ten, I think, and my wife. And um, I just said, no, no, look, we could get stuck here. Uh, The smoke that I was smelling wasn't from the big distant fire. It was close. And what I worked out afterwards was the night before there'd been a dry thunderstorm and it would have been a small fire nearby, which subsequently came down and burnt out the camping area where we were, but we'd left because I'd been called back to work. So... um, And, yeah, I I say in my book, that's the year the penny dropped because I'd spoken to Dad about the fire seasons and he just knew all the indicators, what plants were flowering, when, what trees to look at to see if things are getting really dry, how ants behaved when it was going to rain. And and he just shook his head and said, I can't pick it. I I, I don't know what's going on here. And uh, afterwards, a lot of people just said, we didn't see this coming, but it just dried out. We got days and days of heatwave and strong winds and up until then they were the worst bushfires in New South Wales history in terms of property loss. It would
1: be really interesting to understand, Greg, because I think think for me the really amazing part of your journey is, I guess, the transformation of your thinking and being someone who's a senior leader in an organisation – understanding how your thought process and how you became influenced and how you went on your own journey of, you know, self-discovery and looking at the facts and, and understanding the environment you're operating in. Because from my knowledge in 1994, you would have only just been starting out with fire and rescue and then obviously your journey. Can you, can you help us understand how did that, you know, how did that situation all that time actually impact your career in fire and rescue? And for those who may not know your career in fire and rescue, if you could just quickly take us through your
3: time there. Yeah, sure. Well, look, um, in 1994, I was a, a district officer. So an inspector rank now. They call it inspector. Um, so I'd, I'd come through the ranks. So I, I joined in 1978 immediately after leaving school. I'd been fighting fires since I was 13 and I, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, went through the ranks. So I think I was the youngest or one of the youngest at every rank. I was definitely the youngest assistant commissioner. And, um, so I, I and I was just keen. I just loved what I did, and I studied. I went overseas after nineteen ninety four in a Churchill Fellowship, went to California, Spain, France, Canada, looking at bushfire control. But and and it was inspired by that experience of nineteen ninety four. So but this was worse than anything we've had before in my lifetime, and in Dad's, and he'd been through the nineteen thirty nine fires. Um, what's different? Why? And what can we do in terms of suppression? But as I travelled around the world, people were saying, you do realise it's getting worse, don't you? And I said, well, tell me about that. And people in Spain and France and Canada and the US saying, well, look at our fire suppression technologies and resources. Um, They're exponentially better than they were a decade ago or two decades ago. But are we winning? No. Um, And California had just been through the 1993 firestorm. And I went to Oakland in 1991. Um, they had the Oakland Hills fire, which uh, the tunnel fire, which uh, 20, I think was 25 people lost their lives and thousands of buildings, homes but a relatively small fire, 700 acres. But I went there and worked with Oakland Fire Department and saw just how bad it was. In Northern California, they were saying, you know, it's just getting exponentially worse. The seasons are getting longer. And then a couple of people said, "Read these scientific papers. There's a thing called um, global warming, and that's what's all that about. they so it's about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Oh yeah, what a load of crap!" And uh, but, but I started reading, and I thought, "Hey, this makes sense. CO two is like a big blanket, holds the heat in, and if you do that on a global basis, the weather patterns change because there's more energy in the system, and so the low systems get more intense, the high systems that." the Winds get stronger, um, and the temperatures are just going up by tight, tiny little bits that people people may not notice in their lifetimes. But so that's what I meant by the penny dropped, and I went, "Oh my God!" And this is not going to end in a good place because no one's really doing anything about this. So, um, and in my book, I explain that fifty years of, of observations informed by extensive reading inquiries and overseas studies. And I try to explain, well, here's what I've seen and here's what, here's what the firefighters saw and experienced and here's what the science says about that. And um, guess what? You know, the people who are in denial are saying, you know, whatever we do makes no difference. Um, they're wrong. They're really wrong. They're either too dumb to understand it or they're too ideologically driven to admit it, or they're corrupt. You know, there's there's not many options there, and I'm quite happy to say that because I'm sick and tired of the denial in our political ranks. So it'd be interesting to understand then
1: that, and that's really interesting, that penny drop moment for you, How did that influence your time as commissioner of fire and rescue New South Wales? I guess, you know, when you're in that type of role, you've got a lot of responsibility, um, dealing with and and instilling confidence in community and government, um, you know, preparing operationally to, to, you know, fight fires and, and protect communities. When that penny dropped, do you think that influenced your time as commissioner? And if, if so, how so? Oh,
3: look, most definitely. So in some fundamental ways and, um, Look, I haven't done not offend anyone here, but one of the big things that I needed to shift in foreign rescue was um, there wasn't a lot of external education and not a lot of tertiary education. It was like a trade and it was, we'll learn from the, and we'll get to the top. And um, in the mid-90s, actually, the government said, no, we want the fire brigade to be like the police force. We want the commissioner to run operations. And you know, the business side of the organisation and they should have the skills side. Went to uni, did a master's in management, did a lot of studies and, and then other people saw that, oh, he's getting promoted and prompted them to study. So you you rarely find a senior person in Fire and Rescue these days who hasn't got a master's or a graduate diploma or a PhD um, because there's a thirst for knowledge and wanted to create a learning organisation that can deal with the challenges of the future rather than the rule-bound approach that many emergency services have, quite necessarily, I'll say, but um, through standard operational procedures, standing orders, very rule-bound and thou shalt do it this way. Well, if it's changing, that way might not work. So, And subtle things like I changed ours to standard operational guidelines and we said overtly, we trust you, we invest a lot of money in our people who rise to officer rank, and here's some guidelines, but they might not fit the situation you see. So it was a subtle change in culture. Um, the gender mix, the diversity mix in the organisation, um, if people who all look and think the same get together, they come up with the same solution. So we really, you know, and I brought in 50-50 male, female recruitment for a while there to just get that fix. We had an Aboriginal pathway, but all of that led to, changing the diversity, changing the thought systems, the way people um, approach problems, and it did. And so now back to climate, um, I was pretty out there, I suppose, Seem to be, you know, conservative organisations. Emergency services are quite conservative, and... um, a lot of people who rise to senior rank just like me are control freaks,
0: <laughs> tend to be.
3: Is that there's studies on that, you know, because we want to put things right. That's on fire. I'm not having that. I'm putting it out, Yeah, putting it back the way it's supposed to be. But um, that suppression mindset isn't going to work into the future. We've got to look at how do we make communities more resilient because they're going to be on their own increasingly, as we saw in Black Summer. They're not going to have any fire trucks turn up. And their local fire truck might be a long way away at another fire when ten more break out on the mountain behind the town. And so, what can people do themselves? How are their homes constructed? Where will they evacuate to? How we protect the lifelines: so, um, drinking water, sewage, power, communications. And you know, they're, they're, so there's, there's so much more. And the emergency services are broadening their thinking. And, and I'm not saying I did this. It's a whole lot of visionary people who. I was so fortunate to work, you know, and I won't name some of my colleagues because I'll embarrass some of them and I'll, I'll <laughs> anger others who I forget to mention. But I worked with some incredible visionaries who, you know, we all sort of saw the same things happening. I went, hey, let's change this. And hopefully that's ongoing change. But um, so I, and I was in the media. And, talking about climate change to Black Saturday fires in 2009 in Victoria, you know, um, I got in a bit of trouble over that from the government. They said, just, it's controversial, can you just stay away from it? No, I won't, because this is what's happening and it's my job to protect people. They need to know they won't get a fire truck in every driveway in the future. We will have fires of such magnitude and intensity that we'll have to just protect ourselves sometimes. You know, the lives we'll be saving will be our own. And, you know black like summer that all came home to uh to rest unfortunately we saw what happened so um i was head of the Australasian fire authorities council or fire and emergency service authorities council as well I was president and the board chair for a number of years deputy chair um lee Johnson former commissioner of fire fire and rescue and um fire and emergency services in Queensland he and I had a great partnership for about eight years there I suppose but trying to Lift uh, the understanding and bringing research and new knowledge into the emergency services. And it wasn't me; it was other people. Did this at the Bushfire Cooperative Research Centre, followed by the Bushfire Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre. It's really um, lifted the emergency services' knowledge base and and ability to think outside the box. And what I get back to is the big. Threat that so we see. There's lots of different demographics changing. Older people are more um, vulnerable to all sorts of hazards. So there's a whole lot of processes going on. Less money around. But the big one is climate change because heatwaves kill more people than fires and floods. Floods tend to destroy more homes than fires, or well, they used to. Not anymore. Um, cyclones are getting more intense. Bushfires seasons are longer, more intense. And um, we now have, you know, catastrophic fire age didn't used to have that before 2009. But that just shows a progression. And that's all driven by climate change.
2: The, the Black Summer Bushfires, which you were heavily involved in as a volunteer, um, that's something that surprised a lot of people, but you weren't surprised. Like you were doing sort of work um, after you retired from fire and rescue in preparation for those fires and sort of understood the environment we were in and, and the climate and what was happening. Can you take us through what happened at that point? Like what, how did you predict that those fires were going to be particularly bad this that, that year in 2019,
3: 2020? Yeah, sure. Um Look, if you go through we had the 94 fires and we thought, okay, it's 10 years since, uh, until we've got to worry about more fires. But 1997, we were losing homes in Sydney again, the south, southern suburbs. 2001, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, about hundreds of homes in the lower Blue Mountains, Helensburg. Um, 2002, 2003, we had Canberra, the first recognised fire tornado, and... Um, How many homes? 484 big homes, four lives in one afternoon. And so so that was a a globally notable event the Canberra fires in 2003, January 2003. It just went on. Um, 2009, 2013 in the Blue Mountains. Now, people go, oh, we've always had fires in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, but never in October, in the first couple of weeks of October, never, ever, and never, ever unless there was an El Nino, uh yeah, El Nino um driving up the temperature and making it drier and windier. And you didn't have any of those. It was so the big property loss highs in the mountains had been from November to January throughout history, uh white history, before we came and pushed out the the real owners of this land and country who had managed it well. Um, so this was really out of the box. And in 2018, we dodged a bullet. That's the year New South Wales dodged a bullet. So we had fires burning in August and in the, on the south coast. Now the New South Wales statutory bushfire danger period starts on the first of October because the 200 years—that's when the bad weather started to kick in, the earliest it would kick in. But in August, two months before that, we were losing houses in Bega Valley um, near Newcastle, Port Stevens. These gale force winds, very high temperatures. Queensland was burning. Um, they had massive fires, millions of hectares burnt. And then what happened after that? You had the wild swing back to rainfall. So the towns for floods, you know, half a million cattle drowned. Massive floods, one in 100 year floods. Um, Tasmania burned, but hang on, yep, they've had fires before. No, hang on, apart from two years before, 2016, not in the World Heritage areas where the button grass and swamp areas had dried to a crisp and it was burning for the first time ever, as far as we know. And the wet rainforests on the West Coast, that um, they can't find fire scars on a lot of the very ancient trees there, but now they're burning because things are drying out. So... I started calling around in early 2019 because I, I was fighting fires in Northern Tablelands in February and March 2019. They kicked off again after the rains a bit earlier. It had dried out, losing homes, um, Tenderfield, Glen Innes, Inveril. Um So I went up there for a couple of five-day stints and just looked at the country and thought, if it doesn't rain this winter, we're stuffed. And guess what? We were staffed because it didn't rain. And the fires started very early in August. uh, Sorry, July, June and July, Port Macquarie, Queensland, um, up in the Northern Tablelands again. I started ringing around uh, February that year to former chiefs like Lee Johnson, who I talked about uh, before, and said, what are you saying? They all said the same thing. So very quickly had a coalition of 23 former fire and emergency chiefs all desperately worried about the coming fire season. We tried to warn Prime Minister Morrison and ask for a meeting, but, you know, history records we were just ignored um, until the media scrutiny got a bit hot. They had a quick little meeting with us, not Prime Minister, a couple of other ministers, in early December when it was all too late. Hundreds and hundreds of homes had been lost and it was too late to get more aircraft in and, which wouldn't have made much of a difference anyway by that stage. So it was very clear to people in the business that something very, very bad was coming and as it built. Um, I particularly remember September the fifth and sixth and Binnaborough Lodge I think, I think that's when it burnt in Queensland around that time, but we had catastrophic fire danger in New South Wales before the start of the bush official bushfire season. And we had fires coming down south, um, close to Newcastle, before the start of the bushfire season. They they go progressively from north to south. The old days, now you get the whole state patches alight. So it was a catastrophic scenario but I have to say I didn't, I couldn't foresee just how bad it was going to be. And I'm still I'm still shell shocked by it, and really upset by it.
1: Jeez, yeah, I know. Even just through through my own travel, um, you know, seeing the the broad scale of it um, is quite disturbing. I think when you look at the actual. Um, amount of land that was burnt and at the intensity that it was burnt at. Um, and I know Andrew and I both had family and, and friends who had obviously um, had firsthand experiences. Um, and, you know, when you're, I think when you're in emergency services, you often have experiences from, you know, incident management level, but it just brings it to a whole nother level when it's your own family and it's your own friends that are impacted by, by that disaster. But I just want to come back to a point, cause I think this is a really interesting um You know, thread that we can follow, and it's something that Andrew and I speak a lot about. But it's often in this space um, obviously, emergency services, um, you know, the government organizations, and it's this real tension between how do we do what we need to do on the ground, you know, as as frontline operators, we, you know, we have a feeling and we have a, a knowledge of what we need to do, but often balancing that with some of that political and stakeholder tension. And, and you brought it up before around um, in 2009, the fires in Victoria, you know, there was that political tension. And, and I mean, we've all seen it play out over the past um, 24 months here in Australia as well. But I guess from your point of view, I think for the first question is for, for young leaders or for or, or for people in organisations. What are some proactive strategies that we can use to actually manage that space? Because I know that sometimes it feels, uh, you know, it feels hard to operate in that space, and this is a difficult space to operate in. Um, so, if you have any, I guess, tips around um, future leaders or people who are maybe in organisations, how they can work, um, you know, on that fine line.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, and look, the, the situation at the moment federally and and in some of the states and territories, is, you know, and I'll say it up front, if there's a conservative government, liberal national government, you're not allowed to talk about climate change unless it's New South Wales where you've got Treasurer Matt Keane who is an absolute star and he'll just come right out and say so. So it shouldn't be a um, left-right divide just like England where it's just accepted Margaret Thatcher who was a scientist said, hey, this stuff's real back in the late 70s, wasn't it? she just said this stuff's real we've got to deal with it and they're they're ahead of us so um, but it's become a divide I don't know why don't, you know that's pretty devastating for all of us but um, so I know you know as fire commissioner there was a no go area you you just knew that no that's fraught with politics just fight the fires get on with your job shake your head at some of the rubbish that you hear being in the press by ill-informed politicians and um, and some of the misinformation from a certain section of the media, and but keep your head down. And that's why we came out as former commissioners and deputy commissioners to say, well, they can't say it, but we will. But I, you know, I'll say today, uh, the commissioner of um, DFES, the Def- partner of fire and emergency services in WA, he's very clearly come out and said these fires are driven by climate change. We've never had in the past weather like this overnight that drives fires as if they're burning during the day. And good on you, great. But hopefully we gave him a bit of cover to do that. Now, if you're working in government, what I'd say firstly is arm yourself with knowledge. Um, and be very careful of um, Facebook opinions. You know, and and it's okay for people to have opinions. And if they want to think the world's flat, fine, but I guarantee them they're not going to fall off the edge anytime soon. And it's a bit like, and if they want to have an opinion that there's no such thing as climate change, that's fine, but it's based on nothing because you obviously haven't read anything. And, yes, they're dry reads. Scientific, technical papers are a dry read and take a bit of getting your head around but. Um, if you don't want to do that, go to people like the Climate Council because they demystify this and write short papers that um, summarise what the scientists say, all the real scientists, not the pretend ones, you know, the thousands and thousands around the world who actually use scientific method to observe, record, compare and um, then have your peer review of their findings. Um, that's... That's all saying the one thing. So, you know, little nuances about how severe or when, but they're all saying the same thing. So arm yourself with knowledge. Give your leaders support because what, um, you know, if I knew that people had had my back in the organisation, I probably would have been a bit more vocal, but I knew that not a lot of people were reading the same stuff as me. I tried to get it out there. And I've got a bit criticized by, it, by some people, but I increasingly see unions advising their members. This is what it means because it's going to impact their members in, particularly in fossil fuel industry. There should be you no know, transition, finding good jobs for these people because they're not going to last whatever we do because China, South Korea, the US, um, all our big markets for coal. They're going for net zero by 2050, and they're upping their targets to 2030. So they're going to stop buying that. Um, but the if you're in the public service, you know the tradition of courageous public servant, servants um, providing good advice. Um, don't be browbeaten into oh you can't use the words climate change. Well, it's real. Yes, you can, and here's the data. Back yourself up and. Um, Try to manage upwards a bit. So we've got your back. You know, if you, you're prepared to take this up to people who won't listen, you've, you've got our back and oh, we've got your back. So um, getting together, getting people of like mind and saying, hey, we're okay, we're okay. And Because it can be very lonely as a first adopter. I've been there and it's pretty scary. And you you can worry about your job being on the line. I get that. Um and if that doesn't work, there's external organisations you can join to help get the message across in a responsible manner. Yeah. Um, and I don't condone in any way violence or, um, yeah, that I just, uh, I think that detracts from the message. So we've got to be responsible. And at the moment we're seeing the political sphere, there's independent standing in a lot of seats that were traditionally blue ribbon. Blue Ribbon Liberal, um, because 82% of Australians, according to the Australia Institute, want more action on climate change and are frightened by it. And that's including in coalition seats. They're well-educated. They know what's going on. And so um, that's an interesting phenomenon.
2: I think that's really good advice about the evidence. Because I think that's you can't. It's hard to argue with the evidence. And even though we're politically divided at the moment in this country around um, what the impacts of climate change will be and what to do about it, there's certainly people who are still um, against any existence of climate change, which is unfortunate. But what do you see the longer-term impacts of climate change being? What are we expecting to see? And I know you outlined some of these strategies in your book about what we can do next, but um, what do you see as the, the key challenges, especially for those operating in emergency management and disaster management?
3: Uh, it's, yeah, look, there's, there's so many. But um, I think I think that we don't have an overall forest fire management Policy in Australia, and, and we've really got to look at that. So there's arguments that are, oh, you know, there, there wasn't enough hazard reduction burning, or there would graze in national parks that reduce fire hazard. And the science says, well, actually, you know, the Royal Commission in New South Wales Fire Inquiry said, no, you're wrong. Uh, the fuel levels were no different than they were over the last thirty years. These, these were they were weather driven fires; they weren't fuel driven fires, and mm-hmm. fires burnt. Very quickly through previously hazard produced areas. And I got overrun in an area near and Caves that had been burnt 18 months before and pulled crews out. And once the wind got up and the temperature got up, everything changed, the dynamics changed. But um, we, we do need to do some a bit additional burning, but it's got to be smart. The bushfire hub at Wollongong Uni, they're saying, well, you know, you need to target that to human assets. Um, because if you burn too much in the natural areas, hey, we lost 23% of eastern broadleaf forest against our annual average of three, maybe five in a really bad year. So it's a internationally um, significant amount of land was burned during those fires. So ecosystems are impacted. So you've got to be careful what else you burn. So they're saying burn near assets to reduce intensity of fires when they come in. Um, so. There's a lot of thought got to go into that. Got to look at how people build. Um, Australian Standard three nine five nine building in bushfire prone areas is undercooked now because it's based on fire danger indices from the past, and Black Summer exceeded them. And this one study in particular says that by 2040, those weather conditions under current warming patterns will be an average. That'll be an average summer, the hottest year, driest year ever recorded in Australia, where we. Just, just about reached fifty degrees in Sydney, January twenty twenty. So the old standard won't protect homes. We've got to up the standard. We've got to look at refuges in small towns. We might have to move some towns. But you know, and I talked about. So there's a there's a whole different approach to. So there needs to be a lot of talk, a lot of coordination, and this and the Royal Commission said, hey. We're gonna get compounding disasters like we did, you know, we we had fires, then we had heat waves, drought, fires, then floods. And you know, we still could get cyclones into March. Um, hey, the oceans are pretty warm and we're in the La Niña. So the Royal Commission's saying we need more coordination at the federal level. We need to be look at they're putting soldiers and sailors and the aircrew into nursing homes. Now, they use them for everything now except war. Um, but natural disasters, the DAC arrangements, defence assistance, civil community, uh, our groups, they're antiquated. They're not fit for purpose that we weren't listened to by the Prime Minister. He worked that out in January 2020 when it was in April 2019. Might have been able to do a bit more. But anyway, we'll let that go. Um So there's so much needs to be done to get over this um, all the little theftums not working together. And the Fire Fire and Emergency Services Authorities Council has tried to fill that gap. um, And it's a non-government organisation to coordinate that side. But there needs to be much more done in community resilience and a lot more money going into that. Um, I, I worry about The use of the term adaptation, because I think the horse has bolted. I think we're just trying to catch up now. Um, it'll be do the best we can, but the trajectory of warming and the failure of COP26 in Glasgow to come up with a 1.5, you know, measures that would reach 1.5, I think it's 2.7 degrees we're heading for by the end of the century under current, um, promises by governments. So it's going to be catastrophic.
2: The thing that really worries me about some of this sort of stuff, and look at communities out west in uh, in parts of Australia that um, that have a lot of a high Indigenous community. And um, even in places like Western Sydney and parts of Melbourne where we're seeing temperatures that are sky high um, during summer, it's okay if you have the money to afford air conditioning again get an air-conditioned car and drive to your air-conditioned office. But what about people who can't afford uh, – they live in a low-lying area and experience more flooding. They live in an area that's prone to bushfires or heat waves. Those are the people that are going to struggle first. It's going to be the people who are the most vulnerable in the community that, that sort of certainly feel the brunt of the impacts of climate change first. How in? Well, yeah, that's just a challenge, I guess. How how do we deal with that sort of thing first? That's 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 just a question, I guess, we'll need to answer.
3: Yeah, and, and look, this this feeds into the question of disaster recovery, and um, as you're well aware, um, they're now putting permanent structures in place in states and territories. New South Wales now has um, resilience. New South Wales and permanent structure. Yes, it would just premier's department would get together task force and pull people because that didn't happen that often. But now it happens every year. There's a natural disaster just about every year. Um, but, you know, even a pandemic comes along. But um, at national level, the NWRA. So we have to have permanent processes to help people recover. But who finds it hardest to recover? The people who are hit hardest and have the least um, resources and capability to actually jump back up, and that's what resilience is about, the ability to take a hit and to get back on your feet. Well, if you're on your knees already and you get knocked on your back, how the hell do you get back on your feet? And this is a huge inequity in the system that needs to be addressed and, um, you know, even grants, uh, you know, who can write the best submission. Well, what if... What if you haven't got people who've worked in government or have good writing skills or have a university degree in the community? How, how do they write their submissions? So it's got to be a way of assessing where should this money go, uh, not just to the squeaky wheels. We've actually got to get out there and look and say, you know, these poor people really need help. But then you come back to. You know, there's well-known research on this. If you do it for communities so they can be dispossessed at the end of the day, um, you, you need to involve them in their own recovery and building their own resilience. So it's got to be done. Um, and there's this political drive to do things very quickly, which can actually alienate people and give them things they don't really need or want. So, so it's detailed, difficult work. But these are the conversations we now have to have because, Um, that heat is in the system and it's getting hotter and we're going, you know, we're just getting more and more natural.
1: I think part of the issue as well is often even when we have these conversations about you know social issues and and how that plays out with disaster. I think often the conversation goes straight to, "Oh, how do we help these people recover?" And I know it's a conversation that, that I have a lot in my day to day life. It's really I think we've actually even got a, you know, we're starting to shift the, the the dial around emergency services and government now starting to think, um, you know, more in that preparedness space. But I think that's that's what we've got to do. We can't be talking about some of these social issues in recovery. I think what we've really got to do is actually start talking about some of these social issues in the preparedness space and really focus there so we can actually um, mitigate the problem before it happens. Um, You know, there's some some really – um, worrying stats out there in terms of, I think about 97% of investment goes into recovery and only 3% into, uh, into preparedness. And I think we really need to look at how we actually shift that dial. And I think one of the first boats to go is actually looking at some of those more vulnerable communities. They're some of the the issues we need to look at first. Greg, from, from your point of view, what are your thoughts around, you know, if what what aisle, I guess you sit on, um, in terms of some of your political views. If we were to look at what would government best practice look in this space, what are your thoughts on that? If you know, what does best practice look for government in this space? What do we need to be doing differently today um, t- to change the picture of tomorrow?
3: Yeah, uh, true consultation and involvement, and and at the moment, um, you know, and I'll be blunt, I think a lot of government policy is driven by soundbites and media bites and. Um, how can we get a leg up for the next election? The, the role of government should be about bringing people together, getting the best minds to solve the hardest problems, rather than an ideological approach saying, no, You know, we only contribute this much, and so what we do makes no difference. So, And we're not going to ruin our economy. Well, good on you. When everyone stops buying up coal and oil and gas, um, the economy's ruined anyway. Thanks very much. You've got no plan to... It was past that minerals for batteries or export you know Mike cannon Brooks exporting solar power to Singapore there's geniuses out there who can make Australia a Australia a renewable superpower but um so anyway back to what can be done I better not I do get upset about this because there's so much can be done and it's just not being done and there's a lot of misinformation out there like Um, newspaper ads about. We're putting solar on roofs. No, you're not. I am. And you are. Government's not. So um, a lot of consultation with communities, a lot of decision-making bottom-up rather than top-down because the further you are from the action, the less you know about best solutions and the more money will be wasted. But I suppose that's in it. And rely on a well-educated independent public service who have the brains and the people who will come up with solutions if only politicians would let them.
2: And I want to touch back on that political element you just mentioned. Do you think, like during COVID-19, there's a sense of burnout and people are exhausted. Do you think people have now become almost exhausted from the political debates or even the scientific debate around climate change and they can only handle one disaster at a time? So front of mind is COVID-19 and things like climate change and other issues are kind of thinking, okay, that's that's an issue, I get it, but that's on the back burner for now until I get through the first crisis, which is the one that's front of mind of COVID-19. And I guess that potentially that could drive um, a lack of action by by anyone, uh, individually or government, because um, we're so focused on the 11 a.m. press conference where the COVID numbers are announced. We're not thinking about what are the long-term impacts of climate change. Do you think there's an apathy in the community towards climate change at the moment, and how do we sort of get that back in front of mind? Um, is there an apathy? I don't think
3: there's an apathy. I think there's an understanding, but it comes back the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Um, you know, the basic needs of food, shelter. um, You're not going to get to self-actualisation unless you can actually feed yourself and have a roof over your head. So, you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs and their livelihoods. And, um, you know, look around here, small businesses are doing it really hard. and, And, you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs. So, of course, they're distracted. You know, so it's hard for them to think of higher order things at the moment. And so, let's get through this COVID disaster, Um, and who knows when that'll end? You know, there's, you know, we thought we were through Delta and then Omicron, and um, who knows how long it will be. But it's been very disruptive, Um, had a huge economic impact, which reduces the ability to do other things. But I'll say. In Europe and America, um, and other, other countries, a lot of recovery money was put into green technologies and only a very small proportion, less than 10% in Australia was put into green. Um, you know, we got, and, and we had gas fired recovery for heaven's sake of fossil fuel. Um, so there was so much opportunity there for stimulus to go to green energies, which would have helped our economy into the future. That, um, so some lost opportunities, but yes, people are worried.
1: We're 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 kind of coming up to time, Greg, and 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 thank you for for being with us. We really value your opinion and and your experiences, and and obviously your career. Um, had quite a unique career and kind of been in, in a really interesting box seat to to provide some commentary that you know a lot of the community or a lot of society wouldn't have. You know, the type of insights that you would have. But I guess if there was, you know, three things that you really wanted to leave this podcast with and in terms of the three things that, you know, you want listeners to go away with, what, what would those be? Uh,
3: look, um, again, back to arm yourself with knowledge. Um, know what you're talking about. Opinions, cheap, but real knowledge is a little bit harder because you have to work for it. So work for it. Understand what the problem is. Um, make it known. To let people know, particularly your political representatives, that you care about the future, about your kids and your grandkids, and you demand action. And be nice, be nice to people. You know, it's um. I look, and I I know a lot of people who think you know it's time for revolution. No, I no no we it we need to work together. What has been around the world, um. A lot of splitting and people being pulled apart. I, I'd love to see it coming together and the ability for people to have conversations and um, talk about what's happening and about the facts and dispel myths, etc., and then come to a landing together. Well, you know, like in other countries where climate change is not a political issue, it's a, it's just yes, we have to do something about it, and yes, we will buy public resources, your taxes and mine, to this problem, but we'll be really smart about it and let our country transition to a far better economy.
2: Greg, it's been a fascinating discussion with you today and really we've learned a lot about climate change and bushfires and your career and what we should be doing next uh, in, in life and And really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and experiences with us today. We've added a few photos of you in action to our website at memyselfdisaster.com Greg Mullins, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks, Andrew. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again
1: next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.